Welcome back to another special episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, where every episode is special, but today I think it's exceptionally special. But we are interviewing Dr. Jeffrey Jones, who is the Chief Medical Officer at Cullinan Oncology, a biotechnology company located in the science and technology hub, diaspora, I don't know, heaven of the world in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Cullinan Oncology, as a bit of a background, is aiming to create a new standard of care for patients with cancer, which we all aspire to be the holy grail, clinician, academia, industry alike. Their research is anchored in a deep understanding of immuno-oncology and translational cancer medicine, where they look at their research and they try to find applicable applications for their molecules. Today, we are lucky enough to have Dr. Jeff Jones on our show. But before I introduce Jeff, Michael, how are you today? I'm very good, Josh, and very excited uh, about this special episode. But I think you hit the nail on the head. Every episode of this podcast is special in its own way. We are lucky enough to have Jeff on our show, the Chief Medical Officer who has a wealth of experience both in academia and industry with a wide skill set almost too numerous to actually list, but I'm going to give it a shot. But he's a doctor, he's a clinician, he's an academic, he's involved in education, drug development, clinical trials, management, the list actually goes on. Uh, Jeff, it is so good to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, Great opportunity to chat with you both. Before we go down the rabbit hole, as Michael and I love to do, and we talk about nothing. I'd love Jeff to take the reins, but can you tell us a little bit about Cullinan Oncology, the story behind how this company sort of evolved into what it is today and sort of what your your aims are? Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. And so if you think about, um, you know, Cullinan Oncology has been in existence now for about seven years and as, as compared to a lot of other biotechs where like a single scientific idea is sort of the nidus around which the, uh, the company is built, a certain approach to treatment, a certain type of disease or a, um, um, you know, some, some kind of platform around which the company is built, Cullinan took a very different approach. And um, as practicing oncologists, you'll certainly know that no patient's problem is solved by a platform, right? There's a number of different ways that you approach treatment for a patient, changes over the lifetime of their disease. And many times you're using drugs from different classes that work different ways. It might be immunotherapy in combination with chemotherapy. It might be a small molecule targeting a kinase but it's not anyone's solution. And that's kind of how the portfolio at Cullinan was built. So Cullinan um, you know, sort of grew by identifying interesting targets um, that were thought to have, um, in some cases, broad relevance across multiple diseases or great depth and specificity in certain diseases and was indifferent to the platform. So um, if it was a good drug that was a kinase inhibitor, then we could bring it into the portfolio if it met an unmet need um, and had a clearly focused target of interest. 
if it was an immuno-oncology drug like a monoclonal antibody or a T-cell engager, that could come into the portfolio. Again, if it had a target that was um, uh, validated um, of interest in um, a specific disease or multiple diseases uh, where there was significant unmet need. And as a consequence, um, the portfolio at Cullinan looks more like the medicine chest of a typical oncologist. So within that group of novel medicines that we're investigating are things like kinase inhibitors, regular monoclonal antibodies, novel constructs like bispecific monoclonal antibodies, and some of the first uh, immunotherapy drugs, cytokines. Um, delivered in novel ways to overcome some of the weaknesses of earlier iterations. So when people will ask me, well, why did Cullinan appeal to you? It was very doctorly to the extent that it wasn't one way of approaching a problem. It was um, a number of different ways of approaching the problem um, that struck me as somewhat practical in the end. And um, again, Having spent a lot of years in practice myself, um, you know, the practical application of the science that Cullinan was working on was ultimately what drew me, not uh, not a novel platform or a novel technology, um, but science that I could see how it could be readily applied in the clinic. And Jeff, you, you mentioned, obviously, that Cullinan's biggest focus, and I guess the focus of oncology as a whole is is moving away from the hammer of chemotherapy mm. and the and towards precision oncology. You've sort of mentioned it before, but what was Cullinan's focus on, or is there a particular focus uh, going on at Cullinan at the moment that you can talk about uh, within precision oncology that yeah, has sure. got you particularly excited? Yeah, you know, I, I was fortunate in my own um, you know early career as a, as a clinician and investigator to work on drugs that became um, ibrutinib in chronic lymphocytic leukemia and other lymphomas. Um, when I was even more junior in my training, I was uh, around when imatinib was still in clinical trials, and it really was a, a revolution to see how kinase inhibitors really transformed whole areas of, of hematology. So, um, you know, at Cullinan, one of our lead molecules is a small molecule inhibitor of the EGFR um, uh, tyrosine uh, kinase. And, um, you know, that's a well-validated target in non-small cell lung cancer, but the majority of mutations in the EGFR kinase occur in the exons 19 and 21, but there's this as yet um, un unmet need for really effective, safe drugs um, for patients with activating mutations in the exon 20. And so there, um, deletions in exon 20 are not addressed by most of the common uh, and quite effective drugs for EGFR mutations otherwise, like osimertinib or tigrisil um, is how it's uh, marketed. And so um, a really significant group of patients with persisting unmet need, but for whom um, proof of principle has been shown that a kinase inhibitor appropriately designed um, could address the problem. And so the lead molecule in our portfolio at Cullinan 
is a drug uh, now known as zipalertinib, which is um, a novel chemical entity that has specific specificity, um, exquisite specificity for um, deletion exon 20 mutation non-small cell lung cancer. And this was shown pretty convincingly preclinically and uh, quite fortunately in the initial clinical studies conducted at Cullinan has um, generated data suggesting uh, a potential um, clinical benefit with uh, really uh, best-in-class safety profile, which um, of course is important in applying any drug in the clinic. When you talk about, well, we'll talk about for some phase one studies in a little bit, but I just want to capture a comment that you said about the best in-class safety profile. And a lot of oncology is now moving towards not so much this idea of maximum tolerated dose, but looking also at really quality of life with these drugs that are, as you said, you know, best in class, but also really effective for a long duration of time. There are current, there's a couple of drugs that have been, I guess, uh, I don't think they've been um, accelerated through the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And I was just looking through your trial publication. But there are some, I guess, caveats with these drugs. And what makes your, well, we'll get into the details of the trial design, but what makes zipalertinib a little bit different to the current cohort of the excellent 20 um, drugs that are, I guess, mm-hmm. almost available or are available? Yeah. So if you, if you look back at the early development We'll take you back a couple of decades almost. So to the early development of EGFR, um, receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors, you'll see that um, you know, the original approach, understanding that EGFR was uh, an important oncogenic driver in non-small cell lung cancer, what wasn't understood was that um, the drugs were only active in patients who had activating mutations in the kinase domain. And so many patients were treated with the drugs. And and one of the things that became clear is that they lacked specificity for mutated versus wild type EGFR. You know, EGFR has important biological functions, um, you know, that are uh, explicit in its name. So when you inhibit the normal EGFR, um, wild type EGFR kinase, you end up with a lot of dermatologic toxicity like rash, mucosal toxicity like uh, diarrhea, um, mucositis in some cases. And there are also patients who develop other um, more uh, ominous findings like hepatitis and um, pneumonitis. And so the subsequent generation of drugs, um, third and beyond, have really dialed into the specific mutated EGFR kinase um, with greater specificity and allowing sparing of the wild type kinase. It's not too different with the um, the exon 20 subset. Some of the initial drugs that were developed here um, were also lacking in specificity and they entrained inhibition of the wild type kinase leading to a lot of toxicity which particularly for a drug that requires continuous administration in order to maintain its effect could be quite um, challenging for patients. Sometimes, um, you know, references made to chemotherapy and they say, well, the side effects aren't quite so bad. 
Um, but you know, one thing about chemotherapy um, is that it typically has a defined duration. You know, you take it for three months, four months. Um, many of us can think about getting through something bad if we know it's only going to last five, five weeks or three months. But when you're taking a kinase and you have grade two diarrhea or um, an extensive, um, potentially, um, uh, you know, disfiguring skin rash, those kinds of things that persist over many, many months um, are equally challenging. And so I like to think of it as the area under the toxicity curve is what we're really looking at. And um, sort of lower grade toxicities that persist over time can be every bit as problematic for patients as more severe toxicities that occur on a briefer duration. And so you know, for Zipalertinib, that was um, part of its design, and that's what's been borne out in the clinic, that it can be active against EGFR exon 20 mutated non-small cell lung cancer without a lot of wild-type EGFR-associated side effects. That's a really interesting approach, Jeff, and one that I'm sure patients, particularly on clinical trials where there are a lot of unknowns, I mean, we we see it all the time, I'm sure you do too, that you have all of these theories about how a drug should work and then you actually expose it to the wild and then it works fairly differently in terms of efficacy or toxicity, but um, I'm sure the approach will be very much appreciated by anyone on your clinical trials. Um, Jeff, we do like to also focus on the people, I guess. And so very briefly, would you like to tell us a bit about your journey that brought you from being a practicing clinician to to Cullen and Oncology? Um, just, I guess, if anyone is thinking about engaging with the, the biotech industry, they might want to uh, get a few uh, inklings about how you did it. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are, there are a lot of different uh, approaches to how or ways that people end up in um, biotech. So I'll, I'll give you my own idiosyncratic path. So I, um, you know, in medicine, um, you know, I always liked in counseling uh, students and other trainees um, to think about the kind of patients and the kind of problems and things they like thinking about um, and the kinds of relationships they like building with patients and um, oncology was a place um, that emerged very early in my training is of great interest since um, the patients <clears throat> a very clear and genuine, um, very clear, clear problems. You know, in, in primary care, for instance, you think about patients, you're, you're maintaining their health and you have these very long longitudinal relationships where, that you build over time. In oncology, the interactions are um, um, increasingly of, of longer duration, but, um, you know, it's, it's really focused on getting patients through a really challenging situation and helping them come out on the other side as um, whole people, body, mind, and soul. And so you'll, you'll know that from your own practice. And so I became very interested in oncology and it never shook um, during the subsequent part of my training. And after competing, completing specialty training, um, at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, I, um, I was interested in continuing um, in academic practice, in part because I was interested in improving the care of patients with um, oncologic diseases. And very soon after starting an academic practice, I became completely um, engrossed in early phase oncology studies, sort of new options for patients who had exhausted everything else that was available to them. And thinking about ways that in um, doing that, 
you can uh, provide new options for patients who had none. And uh, it can be a, a great, um, an area of great um, disappointment because um, many of the things we try don't work as you were suggesting. But um, when you have the experience of seeing something um, totally transform a patient's life, um, you know, very early in the development of a drug, um, it's a very powerful experience and uh, you want to keep replicating that. And so as I moved through my academic career, um, I became less focused on care of individual patients and more interested in how I could bring that, um, you know, that uh, experience of uh, really uh, novel, exciting new therapies to an even broader number of patients. And that led me to move from being a clinical investigator in the academic setting um, to working at um, a large pharma company. And then after several years um, doing that, so about five years, you know, I realized um, I wanted to get back into a smaller organization where, um, you know, a little closer to cutting edge science, a little closer again to the clinic and patients. And that's um, easier to do in a small biotech setting than in a large pharmaceutical company that employs 30,000 people globally. And that's how I landed at Cullinan. Interesting story. I was having a look through your, your journey and you've been, you've, you've lived in quite a number of places as well by the looks of it, quite across the States. And I think, you know, your early career was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was something about Canada I saw. Am I incorrect in saying that? No, yeah, it's Quebec, Canada. Yeah, it's, it's the Australia of North America. <laughs> Australia of North America. That's right. That's so very, very <laughs> true. Um, so, which is, this is a great segue uh, talking about, you know, smaller, more nimble companies with sort of cutting edge, really cutting edge tech, because while you've got the standard immunotherapies, which they've, they've splattered across essentially every cancer sure. stream to variable effect, I'm going to bring us back to that trial we were talking about and sort of the early phase results that you said, because you're talking about, you know, exon 20 insertions. There wasn't a lot of treatment. The standard of care really has been chemo chemotherapy and immunotherapy. And, and as you highlighted, importantly, the longer duration, the higher toxicity, you know, there's always a fixed time that someone can be on chemotherapy. But could you tell me about, I guess, the available results, not the ones that are coming up, because I understand there's some phase three data that we can't sort of go through right now but the preliminary results of this drug and can you tell me a bit about yeah. sort of what you found and sort of how you feel this will then slot into if all goes ahead and all goes well and the phase three study all comes out the way we want it to for our patients how this might slot into the treatment of this cohort mm -hmm. sure so um for um for zip alertinib when the drug went into the went into the clinic um, the starting dose at the, at the time was 30 milligrams, um, twice giving twice daily and with plans to continue the dose escalation, which is often how, um, early phase studies are done to identify a dose that's biologically active and yet not, um, clinically efficacious, but not, um, uh, exceptionally toxic. And so you were saying before, you know, one of the, um, one of the great changes in the way we approach 
um, precision medicine or targeted oncology is thinking about giving enough drug to do the job, but not so much that you are, um, you know, pushing the bounds of what's acceptable for patients. And so there's a, there's an optimal dose um, that can be identified. And so the drug actually proved to be um, somewhat efficacious, like biologically active, clinically active at the starting dose. But it became apparent that as the dose escalation proceeded, that doses um, about three times as high, 100 milligrams twice daily, appeared to be a dose at which you balanced quite well safety and efficacy. So at that dose, um, the uh, about 41% of patients um, who had relapsed after at least two prior therapies on average had a had an objective response in their tumor. So shrinkage of the <clears throat> of their disease. All of the patients had failed um, at least chemotherapy. Um, and as I said, the average patient had failed at least two prior lines of therapy. And um, at that dose, um, there was clear efficacy, but there was also acceptable toxicity. And there are two different ways you could measure that. One could just be to look at the frequency of certain kind of events and their severity. And so if we look at it that way, the majority of patients had only mild toxicity. So grade one or two rash, um, diarrhea, Many times it occurred early in therapy and um, subsided as they continued on treatment. And there were no cases of grade three, four um, diarrhea and rash, the kinds of toxicities that come when you hit that wild type EGFR we were talking about. So in the clinic, the drug bore out what we expected. It would target exon 20, deletion mutation, non-small cell lung cancer, but it would do it without um, hitting the wild type kinase and allowing um, you know, adequate therapeutic benefit for patients to continue on the drug. So that's the other metric that you can look at. So how often do patients have to uh, reduce the dose of the medication? How often do they have to stop taking it because um, they can't tolerate it? And there that occurred in a minority of patients. And less than 20% of patients required some significant modification to their treatment regimen, um, which um, is usually associated with a favorable safety profile. We have patients now um, in the initial cohort of um, phase one, two patients who've been on the drug for longer than two years without having to discontinue or drop the dose to levels which are no longer effective. So... Um, you know, with longer follow-up, um, the safety profile continues to hold and patients are able to tolerate it for the long term, which is what's necessary for them to maintain control of their disease. Yeah, it's a really interesting study and a really exciting novel agent. And just looking through some of the uh, results on the on the published data that uh, you guys have put out, the duration of response is incredibly impressive, uh, you know, the median uh, follow-up 11 months, the duration of response is 10 months, uh, the uh, median time response was time to response was quite quick at 1.5 months. So if you've got people who need a response fairly quickly, you'll have the potential to get that. And your focus on sort of the the balance of between safety and efficacy. I mean, I've 
been involved in a fair few phase one trials this last year. And some of the toxicities you see with these with these phase one trials are uh, quite severe and obviously put the patients uh, at, at significant morbidity. So the fact that there's a very good safety profile or a promising safety profile is, is very encouraging, as you say, so that they can tolerate um, it over the long term. Yeah, and you know, and that's the uh, durability of response. Depending on the mechanism, durability of response is inextricably linked with t- tolerability. So, you know, nobody can um, withstand a, a noxious drug over the long term. So really finding a sweet spot where you provide adequate clinical benefit with um, acceptable safety is very important um, for maximizing the benefit of any drug. Um, there's been a lot of talk <clears throat> here in the United States. You know, um, we, uh, there's an initiative with our um, Food and Drug Administration that is um, you know, requiring oncology drug developers to do more work to optimize the dose, to identify a dose that is, um, you know, sort of uh, finding that sweet spot where um, safety and efficacy are well-balanced. That's relatively new in oncology. Um, That's always been based on, um, you know, giving as much chemotherapy as the patient can tolerate to overcome um, resistance. But... um, you know, it's uh, it's something that's been part and parcel of drug development and other therapeutic areas for years. And I think it shows kind of the evolution of oncology that we are worried more about um, treating patients while maintaining their quality of life, um, understanding that we've got better tools to do it now. What do you think the future holds for Zipalertinib? Um, based on, I guess, your own personal experience in, run, in being involved in this trial? Uh, so, um, you know, I, I'd say the, you know, the, place, the ultimate place in therapy will, will depend on a lot of things, but um, I think the potential not only to treat patients like the ones we have in our existing trial, patients who have relapsed after exposure to prior therapy, most notably chemotherapy, um, you know, there's certainly a place there but probably the better place for this drug will be earlier in the treatment continuum. Um, and we are studying it with um, one of our industry partners as first-line therapy for patients with exon 20 um, insertion mutation, non-small cell lung cancer. And there we're giving it in combination with standard of care chemotherapy to try to maximize the benefit of early therapy, induce a deeper remission and then continue the zipalertinib over the longer term to help maintain remission over time and extend the period of clinical benefit. That strategy is often the first way of trying to get, um, you know, to get a drug, um, you know, into first line um, oncology uh, situation. And um, we have great belief that it will provide benefit for patients there. But we're also looking at exploring it in some other specific situations. So patients with EGFR-mutated non-small cell lung cancer have a cumulative risk of nearly 50% of developing metastases in the brain, which can be very difficult to treat. And there, we are looking um, to conduct a dedicated study to determine the intracranial activity of the drug, um, along with our partners. And we're also in an exploratory study 
looking at zipalertinib alone, no chemotherapy, as an alternative to chemotherapy-based regimens for the treatment of patients in the front line. So together, I think those studies will, will help understand the place in Exxon 20. And then there's still a group of patients very nearly as large as the Exxon 20 group um, who have even more rare mutations in their EGFR kinase. And there, um, we think there's also potential activity of the drug. And we're also initiating exploratory studies in these rare mutations to understand if zipalertinib can benefit those patients where there's currently no approved drug. That sounds absolutely incredible. You know, uh, one of the, in Australia, we have a rare cancers kind of push at the moment where a lot of these, I guess you can call them orphan cancers or orphan subtypes don't have anything that's really efficacious or targeted due to a plethora of, you know, historical reasons with drug development. And I love the idea of combining your your drug with chemotherapy. It's a bit like the Flora 2 study that came out. You know, it showed, you know, benefit again above a standard of care, osimertinib, which is already a really, really efficacious drug. I think, you know, we, we try to, we try to limit our, our interviews somewhat. Otherwise we sort of rant for hours, but I think, um, one of the questions that I want to have before we let you go, Jeff, is are there any um, uh, plans moving forward to expand internationally? I know that in Australia, we love trials. Um, everyone's clamoring for more and more. Uh, but of course, there's always a, the cost the cost expense of that. But from an engaging with, I guess, facilities and those sorts of things, what does the future hold for, I guess, Cullen and Oncology? Yeah. Well, while our company's based in Cambridge, we do conduct trials globally. So the trials that we've been talking about are all global trials that have enrolled patients um, both here in the United States, as well as Europe um, and Asian Pacific countries. Um, The Exxon 20 insertion mutation actually is more common in Asian populations. And so it's it's far more common, um, we found, in patients in China Singapore, Taiwan, um, Japan, Korea, countries where we're, we're conducting our clinical trials. Um, and we even have a couple of ongoing projects um, at investigative sites in Australia, believe it or not. So um, the time difference presents its challenges for uh, interacting with investigators. But like this conversation, we can often find uh, an, an amenable time to connect. Fantastic. Well, Jeff, Thank you so much for coming on to the show and giving us a, a bit of a, a look at the other side of the coin. We talk about a lot of the results and the published data that comes out uh, across various tumor streams, but it's very interesting to hear the incredible thought and incredible amount of effort that goes into developing a drug, developing a trial, and seeing it through to its natural conclusion. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, and thanks for having me. And we look forward to bringing you back when uh, hopefully you can talk a bit more about that phase three data. Yeah, well, you're, uh, we'd be happy to come back and talk. Amazing, amazing. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. If you like this episode, there's plenty more where that came from. 
check out our website, inquisitiveonk.com, that's inquisitiveonk.com, for links to all of our previous episodes. You'll find links to our social media there as well. If you'd like a particular subject covered on the show, feel free to drop us a line on Twitter at inquisitiveonk or via email at inquisitiveonk at gmail.com. This has been Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, a podcast by ABC Production.